0: On this edition of the Bill Kelly Podcast with me, Scott Radley, sitting in for Bill today, we are talking about Canada's election, but specifics. There are three area codes that some experts are saying will probably or could decide this election. We'll tell you which ones those are. We're going to talk about COVID vaccines and specifically whether Canada should be doing more to send our surplus to the developing world to get people who have had no vaccines yet vaccinated rather than us holding on to these in case we need a third dose. And Donnie Coy, legendary comedian, joins us to talk about another legendary comedian, Norm McDonald, who passed away this week. Stick around. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We are just days now away from the federal election. Every poll, every poll that I've seen, every reputable poll says that this is I mean, it's a cliche, but literally too close to call. We we just don't know. And so close right now that when we say too close to call and we don't know, I don't think anybody even would tell you they have an inkling. It doesn't seem like anyone's got great momentum. It doesn't seem like anyone's pulling away. The, all the numbers are basically in a statistical tie. So what this means is there are going to be certain areas where vote turnout and where certain scenarios, certain circumstances may propel people to vote or may propel them to vote one way or the other. And those particular areas could end up being the difference. I mean, we know what's going to happen in the West, I think. We have a pretty good idea what's going to happen in the Atlantic provinces, maybe. But what about some other places? I want to bring in L.E. and MacDonald. He is the editor of Policy Magazine and a former national affairs columnist for the Montreal Gazette. Ian, how are you today? Thanks for doing this. Do we have Ian? Sorry about that. How are you, Scott? I'm good, thank you. You know, we'll get the technical stuff worked out. Thanks for doing this. Really appreciate you joining us. My pleasure. There are, it seems, uh, now, uh, the whole country is kind of interesting right now because it's just, it's such a uh, close race. But you've identified there are three real areas that could really determine this election that, as we've said, is too close to call. I want to go through them with you and and try and have you explain how this might go, what's leading to the the decisions and everything else. Let's start with your stomping ground, 450, the 450 area code, the Montreal area. Why is this? 450 is the suburban ring around
1: Montreal, which is 514, Scott, as you know. Okay. And uh, it's very, Montreal is a liberal bastion on the island a bit like Toronto 416. Uh, but uh, 90, uh, 450 was very competitive between the Liberals and the Bloc. And um, uh, there's also 418 around Quebec City uh, where the Conservatives are in play. And interestingly, uh, it was the English debate that made the... have brought the Bloc back uh, because of the, uh, the question that... Uh, Satchi Krul was asking, not Satchi a upholster, but Satchi a moderator, about um, Bill 21 and Bill 96 in Quebec and whether they were discriminatory, and that seems to have given the block a bit of a bounce uh, uh, from last weekend into where we are midweek, uh, where they're very competitive with the Liberals again in 4-5-0, and... Um, maybe stalling the Conservatives a little bit in the Quebec City
0: region around 418, Quebec City and East. So very what, competitive. What about the idea? So you've got competing issues or competing propulsions uh, going on there because you've got, as you say, that comment um, by the moderator that seemed to give the block some life in that debate. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, you've got Quebec's Premier who's not directly, but all but endorsing the Conservatives. Uh, w- which one carries more water? Uh, well, uh, the
1: bloc would be pretty much supportive of uh, Premier Legault and uh, and his CAQ Coalition Avenir Quebec because they represent a nationalist but not a sovereignist view of Quebec against the what we call orthodox federalism as represented uh, in uh, Legault's view the other day. By the liberals and the and the uh, NDP and even the Greens, and he called them dangerous for Quebec, which was quite an intervention on the part of the of the premier. You can't imagine, for example, Bill Davis having said that about an Ontario, you know, hmm. Ontario
0: campaign for sure. <laughs> so uh, okay, so where then? Um, who stands to? Who, who stands to gain out of all this? And again, we've got the Conservatives who you would say probably should get some benefit from Legault. Um, you've got the Bloc who's going to benefit. Maybe put it the other way. Who stands to lose? Them? Is it the Liberals that stand to lose the most out of this, Out out you know, of, with liberals, all that's when, happened?
1: Yeah, when you when you break down the numbers into the regionals, among what you call the reliable posters, and I agree, the ones that I look at every day are Nanos and uh, Ecos. Uh, um, and they're both national. We have the Liberals and the Conservatives in the low 30s. And when you it's when you break into the regionals and the area codes, that it gets interesting. The Bloc is now competitive again in Quebec, uh, trailing the Liberals by only three or four points. And the Conservatives are hovering around 20%. Most of that in Quebec City and East. Um, so uh, that's something to watch for in four or five on Monday.
0: Let's go to the other side of the country for a second. Another area code that could potentially have a big, big impact on this, and this is one you've identified, 604, the area around Vancouver. Uh, different story because it's not the block, obviously, uh, that's, that's, that's in play here. But the NDP is doing very, very well in BC right now. Um, you know, the yeah, Liberals, but- I know, were hoping to pick up a few. That's one of the areas they were hoping to pick up a few seats to work towards their majority. Seems like it's not happening.
1: Now, from third place where they are now, in the regionals, uh, both in Ecos and uh, and uh, Nanos, uh, Ecos has the NDP and the Conservatives tied around 30%, and the Libs trailing by about six points in the mid you know mid 20s. Uh, that means that in the Lower Mainland, the Liberals are in trouble, and uh, they're not going to grow. Uh, there's 42 seats in British Columbia, most of them in the you know in the Lower Mainland, where the NDP uh, are very competitive with the Conservatives. And then of course you have got the two Green members, Elizabeth May and her colleague, uh, where they're responsible for the for their leader having been invited to the debates last week because they're in the House of Commons. Well, we'll find out next week whether they're still going to be. Uh, I expect Ms. May would win. In Saanich, Gulf Islands, I don't know about her, her colleague. I think that's a competitive play.
0: What's so interesting about this, though, if you pull up the 2019 electoral map, um, yeah. and, and you know what, I, I would encourage people to do this anyway, because it's very illustrative. Now, I understand that some writings are way bigger than other writings, but boy, it is it is an interesting view of what how this country is divided, because it's, there's some pretty clear delineations. But back to Vancouver area and the 604, That was the one area in 2019. If you look, BC, the whole left side of BC was NDP. The right side of BC and heading into Alberta was conservative. The one red dot on the map was what you're talking about. They've got to hold that, do they not? Yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons Mr. Trudeau basically spent the two days of this week
1: in 604, in Vancouver and Richmond, trying to... uh, um, bolster his standing and that of his party in, in that region. The problem with the liberals have is that Trudeau's become the brand for the party and, uh, you know, he's, he's a bit overexposed, I think.
0: That is that is certainly one of the words. I mean, other people will use other words. Uh, some will say he's fantastic and he's still a fresh face and all the rest. Others will, well, we know what others might say. <laughs> so we we probably get in trouble if we say what some of those words are on uh, the radio here. When
1: you build the brand and tell the leader, when the leader has a couple of bad days, it reflects on the brand, doesn't
0: it? Uh, I'm going to get to the other Erico, but just you brought up Trudeau. I want to ask you a very quick question about this. Um, long view question of this. If we end up on Monday evening at 11 o'clock or 12 o'clock or whatever time it is back in the same position with a liberal minority government, and that could happen, we don't know. But if we were to end up right where we started, we've now spent over $600 million for an election. Can Justin Trudeau remain the leader of, can he remain, can he govern the country as prime minister if we've gone through all this and spent all these millions of dollars for essentially nothing?
1: That's a very good question. Constitutionally and according to convention, he has a parliament, even if he has fewer seats than the conservatives in a a minority house. Uh, Morally, would he have the moral authority to govern or should he resign? That would be a follow-up question, I think, for next Tuesday and and beyond.
0: It becomes a very interesting one. one,
1: With one thing in view, asking for a majority. And it turns out people were annoyed about being bothered at the cottage and you know, it was in the middle of the, pan, the fourth wave of the pandemic and the, the wildfires in the West and then Afghanistan and the fall of, through no fault of Canada or, or, or the liberals, the fall of the Afghan regime, uh, record time kind of precipitated by the artificial deadlines that Mr. Biden had set for American withdrawal by 9 11 anniversary. Mm.
0: All right. So we said there were three area codes, 450 around Montreal, 604 around Vancouver. There's lots of area codes, but three big ones, three big, big ones that could really have an impact on this election. And the third one, one that we know very well around here, the 905 area code. We have been told, Ian, that the 416 is still leaning liberal. At least those are what the polls seem to show. But once you get outside of Toronto... Into the 9.05, it becomes a much more wide open question mark. Why is 9.05 so important right now? Well, I think when you look at the you uh, uh, in Ontario, they're basically,
1: the Liberals and the Conservatives are basically tied. And when you take out the Liberal vote in 416, all those, uh, all those other easy ridings for them, uh, rather like it's their version of Alberta, if you know what I mean, Right. Where they have wasted majorities. Uh, it kind of comes down to 905, where majorities and elections are run Um Trudeau got his majority in 905 in 2015. Stephen Harper got his one majority there in 2011. And that's, the, you know, the, I wouldn't call it the ring around Toronto, but nine oh five turning into 416 and in what's now known as the GT, GTHA. Including Hamilton and um, uh, around, uh, an area that has evolved over the years. I mean, I remember Hamilton as being Tiger Team, which I'm sure it's, it is, and Tigers and Raw and Sam Esquiveri and Bernie colonial in great football games. But that was before Hamilton became famous for McMaster Hospital and McMaster University became world famous, and before hospital building. Uh, did you see that? the survey a couple of months ago that had the top 10 most expensive cities to live in in North America, and Hamilton was one
0: of them, right around Vancouver and Toronto. Number three, yes. Number three. Wow, when did that happen? Hey, listen, people here have been asking the, time time the same question if they've been trying to get into the housing market. Oh, boy, off Yeah.
1: And, and when you look at it, Hamilton is 905, is closer to Pearson Airport than a lot of people uh, living in downtown Toronto. Right.
0: Is there any um and again, I'm going back and looking at the electoral map from two thousand nineteen and once again, I mean this this map is so illustrative of so many things, but you look at this map and metropolitan Toronto, the Toronto area, a consistent splotch of red. I mean, it is it is red up and down through Toronto and then but as you say, as soon as you get outside with a very few exceptions, a couple of them here in Hamilton who are orange, it is blue. And I'm looking going do do you are you anticipating? Any real, change, any real change to the look at that map? I mean, is, has anything moved that says when we look at the 2021 map after Monday, it's going to look vastly different? Well, if
1: the Conservatives hope to form a minority government they need to win 9.05. That's period paragraph. And in terms of the, those four Hamilton writings, I was looking at the 338 Canada um, riding by riding breakdown across the country yesterday. And they have Hamilton Mountain and Hamilton Centre is safe for the NDP. Hamilton West is safe for the Liberals, and Hamilton East, Stony Creek, is a toss-up between the Libs
0: and the Dippers. Is that your sense of it? Um, probably. Although, you know, I mean, things were things were a lot closer in some of the ridings last time. So who knows where things are going now uh, with some of these, but. I mean, again, looking at this, so even if you were to to go there, I guess if we talk about again, the 604, you talk about the 450, now you talk about the 905, what seems to be the constant is the opponent may be different. The block in Montreal area, the NDP in, uh, in the Vancouver area, the conservatives in the 905 area, but in all these cases, it's the liberals that are the ones who are looking at having to put out the brush fires. They are the constant in all of these, in all these writings.
1: Yeah. And they were the ones who, five weeks ago, had a 12-point lead in the polls. And, you know, if you talk to anyone who's lived in a war room, no one likes to go into an election 12 points ahead. It's very dangerous. (laughs) It becomes kind of beware of what you wish for. And um, we we all know the saying, a week is a
0: long time in politics. Well, we've seen that in the campaign. Yes. Yes. One more thing, Ian, about this, because uh, again, looking at this map and, and again, I would encourage again, everyone to go f- look it up online. It's not hard to find It's really interesting that Toronto consistent patch of red, um, that has to remain red. And the reason I mentioned that is because, you know, we've seen some numbers pushing the NDP up a little bit, a little bit, a little bit if the NDP just steal a few of those seats in Toronto, that becomes a, it's not even about the conservatives. That becomes a huge problem for the liberals.
1: Oh, if the NDP were to win three or four seats out of the 25 or so in, in 416 would probably signal the end of the end
0: of the day rather early in the night
1: for the liberals.
0: Yeah. It's a, um, it's a fascinating situation with these, uh, say with three places that are so close Ah, uh, the liberals in the midst of all of it, but um, but with difficulties for sure, or, or maybe you not. Said, you know, as you said, too close to call. As I say, they have difficulties or not because we don't know. We could find out on Monday night that you know polling has at times, despite the best efforts, polling has at times been wrong. I mean, we could find one of these parties truly was up by five points and we didn't know it because the numbers weren't really there. But Barring right now, it's social election recently where a two point shift resulted in a change of government. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, And and that's it. You mentioned, and we got to go, but you mentioned wasted majorities. You know, it's, it's lovely to win a riding by 80%, but you still only win the one seat. Thank you to Ian McDonald for that one. fascinating discussion. You're listening to the Bill Kelly show podcast on 900 CHML. There are those, uh, I think plenty of those, in fact who say it's essentially inevitable that we're going to need a COVID booster soon, maybe in the fall, maybe in the winter. Variants are coming along. So we're going to need our third shot. I know not everyone's thrilled. Some think it's fantastic, some not so much. Nonetheless, that is a third injection. And it raises a bit of a conundrum, a bit of an interesting question. Should Canadians be getting a third shot before some people in the world get their first one? Now, it's a question that's going to inspire all kinds of debate. All you have to do is look at the news every day and see the people with different, sometimes very passionate opinions on shots. Some will think the third shot is absolutely necessary. Some don't want the first one. You you know where I'm coming from. You know all about this. It makes your head spin, though, to think about how this debate might be framed. Nonetheless, should Canadians be getting a third shot before other people in poorer places get their first one. Doctors Without Borders has put out a, an open letter to the leaders, the future governments of this country, because as we've mentioned before, we have an election coming up Monday. Let me read a line from that letter. It's a, it's a fascinating piece. Throughout the pandemic, governments, including Canada's, invested billions of dollars into the research and development of the COVID-19 vaccines that are in use today. Yet today, The world is confronted with an inexcusable, deep global inequity in the international response to COVID-19 with people in lower income countries still largely cut off from the world's limited supply of vaccines. Governments had the opportunity to demand fair, affordable global access to COVID-19 vaccines from the pharmaceutical companies who now control access to them, but they didn't do so. This is simply bad policy and bad public health. I want to bring in Dr. Jason Nickerson. He's the humanitarian affairs advisor for Doctors Without Borders. He joins us now. Dr. Nickerson, thanks for the time today. Appreciate this. Hi,
2: Scott. Thanks for having me.
0: I think I'm going to ask you a question that I've, you know, they always say if you're a lawyer, never ask a question you don't know the answer to. I don't know what you're going to say here, but I'm reasonably sure I do. I'm going to ask it anyway. Do you believe that Canadians should be getting a third shot before other places in the developing world get their first one?
2: well let's start with the evidence um so at the moment there's as, as you're probably aware there's really uh no robust evidence that suggests that uh third doses for the general population are are necessary um and uh it's it's slightly different for different subpopulations so people who are immunocompromised and, and uh, older populations and so on um but if we're if we're talking about uh ending the the pandemic, if we're talking about uh, looking at vaccination as a public health strategy and a public health tool, which in my view is how we should be, uh, there's no question that uh, getting first doses into the arms of uh, as many people as we can around the world uh, is is a far more effective strategy for getting the pandemic under control and ultimately ending the pandemic uh, than protecting some people uh, in some countries while uh, billions of people in other countries remain unprotected and and COVID is allowed to circulate uh, and and variants to to emerge that again put all of us, including those of us uh, in, in Canada who are fully vaccinated uh, at additional risk.
0: Let's not make this all about me or all about us. That's, that's not always an appealing quality, but but you know what? Let, let's ask the question. I mean, is there a real advantage to Canada, an advantage to Canada to getting places far, far, far away from us vaccinated? Or is this simply a, a moral imperative because we want to be the good Canadians that help people around the world?
2: Well, look. I, I obviously, certainly think that there is that moral imperative. This is this is the right thing to to do. Uh, to you know, scale up access to vaccines so that people are protected. I think. It, really none of us would, would disagree uh, with the idea that people should have access to the medicines and the vaccines that they need. Um, but if we want to look at it from a purely self-interested perspective, you know, we, we live in an interconnected world. Uh, we, we can't forget that uh, in, in January, February and March of, of 2020, uh, this was a virus that was uh, circulating in other parts of the world that came to Canada Um, And the same is true of of the variants uh, of of concern that uh, are now uh, dominant in parts of canada so i'm of course talking about the delta variant and so on um, you know these these are uh variants of a virus that emerged in other parts of of the world and and have found themselves uh in canada and are now creating public health uh problems uh, for canadians and and for our health system so uh you know certainly there there is a self-interested argument uh, here as well in, in in vaccinating the rest of the world to control the the covid-19 pandemic and ultimately to, to end
0: it. I heard what you said right off the top about the third dose, maybe being, you know, the evidence not necessarily being there, maybe whatever else, but the possibility that we could find that we need a third dose, would it not be political suicide for a leader if we were to, if he or she was to give away or donate some of our supply, and then we found out we needed it. And much like our PPEs back when this whole thing started, and then we find out, oh, wait, we're short. I mean, I think any political leader is going to be scared to whittle down our supply.
2: Well, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not going to comment on on sort of the politics of this. I'm I'm a population health specialist, uh, and and so what I can comment on certainly is you know the public health aspects of it. I I, I hear what you're saying, um, and there there's a few aspects uh, to this that I think we need to consider. So one, the 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 immediate steps that countries need to be taking, and I'm not just talking about Canada, I'm talking about other countries uh, as well that have a surplus of doses. Um, And now there are many countries that have vaccinated large percentages of of their their eligible population and and have surplus doses that are uh, available. Um, A a certain percentage, and, and at the moment, a large percentage of those doses um, need to to be going out to vaccinate people who who are unprotected uh, in in other parts of the world. This is just a, a, a public health strategy um, that the world needs to to come around to. Um, now we're still operating in an environment where. Uh, there, there is effectively an artificial scarcity of of vaccines, and I say it's artificial because I, I don't think that the world uh, has scaled up manufacturing uh, as much as we we could have, and that's ultimately a choice that has been made by uh, pharmaceutical companies and and uh, to, to keep prices extent. high, supply no. and
0: demand to keep prices high. You believe.
2: Well, it's, it, it, I mean, this is how the industry operates, right? I mean, the, the quote that you uh, mentioned from our open letter um, really gets at, at this point, which is that governments largely subsidize the development of of these vaccines. I mean, we're talking about billions of dollars um, of public funds that went to support the research and development of, of these vaccines. And in, in some cases, You know, just to give a sense that that public funding accounts. uh, There are some estimates that that suggest it accounts for upwards of ninety five percent of the total R and D that went into these vaccines. So this is not a marginal amount. Um, And governments didn't demand, uh, I think, basic things: access, affordability, um, and you know, basically optimizing. Um, the, the manufacturing capacity of these vaccines, on the other end, we had, we allowed uh, pharmaceutical companies to to maintain this monopoly on on you know how many doses get produced, where they get sold first, what the prices are, and so on. And that's created this scarcity uh, that that we find ourselves in now. There are manufacturers out there um, that have indicated that they are capable and prepared of uh, to to manufacture additional doses to increase the global supply, and they're not being. Allowed Allowed to do so um and that's certainly contributing to to a situation where only 1.9 percent of people in low-income countries today have received uh one dose of of the vaccine compared to 75 percent of people in canada
0: number of years three excuse me three or four years ago my wife and i were in uganda um we were visiting a medical clinic that a very good friend of ours runs and operates over there and one of the comments that struck me and it was it really uh, it blew me away because I had no expectation of this. Was that over there, and, and you know, uh, there was great suspicion about Western medicine among many of the people. They just they didn't trust it. Uh, birth control pills, for example, were ver- very suspicious about what th- what Western medicine might offer. If we send these vaccines, what are we seeing? If we send vaccines to developing countries. Are they being widely used or is there concern that somehow it's, it's not good for them or, I mean, how, how eager are many of these countries and many of these people groups to take this?
2: Well, we've seen COVID-19 vaccination campaigns rolling out in in virtually every country uh, uh, around the world. Um, so I I do think that we need to be careful about how we we talk about um, vaccine hesitancy and and this this hesitance uh, to to use uh, modern medicine because this is a, quite frankly a global phenomenon. I mean we're we're seeing this in in Canada as well. We're seeing protests and and so on. So um, I I don't think that it's it's fair for us, uh, or or correct for us to say that this is a, a disproportionately large problem in in low and middle income countries. This is a global problem, um, and the way that we overcome it anywhere in the world is is the same way that we do here. It's it's by engaging with communities. It's by building trust uh, in the healthcare system. Um, and and building trust uh you know that that if people are sick and they come to the hospital they're going to be cared for uh in in an evidence-based uh and, and appropriate way so our our approach in any country around the world is, is to to working with communities is the same uh, as it would be in Canada. It's, it's fundamentally all about trust. And it's possible, of course, to build that trust when you're providing high quality care and when people see that something like the COVID-19 vaccine uh, protects them and it protects their communities.
0: And of course uh, it's not like we're not without our vaccine hesitant or, or, or those who are against it. It's not like that's just a third world issue clearly with this thing. Um, there is the other part about this open letter that I found so interesting um, in, in the Doctors Without Borders letter, and it's, it, people can find it online. Um, you haven't just called for this, but you've called for more affordable medications, other medications that we've developed here with public money, correct? I mean, that, that, that if the, as That's you've right. just alluded to, if the government is going to fund this, you better be willing to then provide it where needed
2: absolutely so there you know there's a few things uh, in in here that that would um, like people to understand so one is that virtually 100% of the medicines that we use in canada and and around the world um have received some form of public funding so so many drugs many vaccines originate in publicly funded labs, so in universities and hospitals, um, and receive uh, funding from, you know, Canadian uh, research institutes from the federal and provincial governments and, and so on uh, to, de- to develop them. Um, and in, in some instances, as in the case of the COVID vaccines, that funding makes up a sizable amount of the R&D uh, funding that, that's required to get a drug uh, you know, through clinical trials, through, through all of the preclinical work and so on. And it, it's expensive. Um, we think that um, it, it is inexcusable um, that there would be a drug. That uh, is is life saving or life sustaining that was discovered or developed with Canadian public funds that then becomes priced out of reach uh, for mm. Canadians, which of course happens, um, or for people in in low and middle income countries. and And so our ask is for governments to to make common sense changes and say, look, if we're going to pay with public funds to discover or develop a, a new medicine, the the strings that are attached to that funding is that it needs to be priced fairly, um, and the and the final price needs to be reflective of the investment that the, the public has made in this. It can't just be priced at whatever the market will bear. and um, Because quite frankly, we're seeing people around the world who simply cannot afford the new medicines that they need. We live in an era of medicines costing hundreds of thousands of dollars per patient per year. And that's not reflective of... Um, the risk that was borne uh, by the private sector in in developing it, nor is it reflective of the manufacturing costs. Um, so this is ultimately, you know, these are incredibly profitable uh, medicines for people, and that that profit comes at the expense of of patient access, and and that we we can do better than that.
0: If we paid, if the taxpayers paid for all this R and D to get these things out, would, as far as you know, was nothing arranged so that some of the money that would come back in would come back to the country or is it all going to the private pharmaceutical companies?
2: Uh, as a, a, a rule, um, there are no conditions that are uh, attached to the the billions of dollars of medical R and D funding um, that governments provide, including in Canada. Um, and so, the licensing agreements and the funding agreements that we have seen and that we are aware of uh, in Canada do not make this this ask. Um, so, even when that funding consists of hundreds of millions of dollars to, you know, fund a new uh, manufacturing facility or uh, to to directly invest in a new drug or, or a new vaccine, that funding does not ask uh, for any kind of, of fair patient access or affordable patient access uh, for Canadian patients or for anyone around the world.
0: Is that a mistake? Because it, let's say, I mean, look, throwing out numbers that are just pulled out of the air, but let's say that the government said, we'll give you the money to develop this drug. When it's developed, we are taking 5% and that money could go towards future R&D to develop other drugs. It seems like it would be certainly a fair or a reasonable trade-off.
2: I absolutely think that it's a mistake. I mean, we we would argue that the the correct thing to be negotiating is is not the the sort of uh, return on an on investment in the form of profits, but it should be affordable and and fair pricing uh for for people in Canada to to you know reflect that investment and an agreement that uh you know that drug would be made uh available at again a fair price for for anyone who needs it um you know particularly people in in low and middle Income countries where for decades we've seen people priced out of of getting access to the medicines that they need.
0: This, uh, our our conversation today again stems from this open letter that uh, Doctors Without Borders has put out. Um, It's not a coincidence that this letter comes out right before an election, obviously, but Mm -hmm. is this the extent? Of what Doctors Without Borders will be doing to put this letter out and hope that the leaders do something? Or is this something that you're going to be more aggressively lobbying to try and make sure whoever forms the next government really listens and maybe changes some things?
2: uh it certainly it, it it goes beyond this um and we've been engaging with the canadian government on this for for several years um you know 3 or 4 years the, we've we've been engaging with members of parliament with parliamentary committees with uh, you know health canada with a, a number of different uh, players um so we will continue uh, to to push for this um, and and uh, you know part of the the rationale for that is that Canadian researchers are developing medicines and vaccines that we need in in our programs, um, and unfortunately, many of the vaccines that that we're aware of, in particular in Canada, um, are essentially stalled. They're they're they've been sitting on shelves for for years, um, and the reason for that is that they're. These diseases are unfortunately neglected diseases and, and essentially market failures. So I'm talking about diseases like Lassa fever that uh, infects hundreds of thousands of people each year in, in West Africa, Marburg virus disease, which is a, a viral hemorrhagic fever similar to to Ebola, and even things like schistosomiasis. So this is a a, a, a parasite that infects uh, millions of people around the world. So there, there are vaccine candidates for all of these diseases uh, under development uh, in Canada, Canada, um, that just haven't made it to the finish line. Um, and in large part, that's because there's no profit incentive for companies to to take them uh to to the finish line. Um, so as as Canadians are talking about, you know, scaling up vaccine manufacturing in, in Canada, we're talking about this biomanufacturing strategy and and politicians are committing billions of dollars towards it. Um, you know, this this it is about how do we finish the the the, work, the good work that's being done in Canada um, on vaccine development, on drug development, um, and how do we create the the appropriate ecosystem to, to get some of this stuff to the finish line so that people around the world are able to access the medicines and the vaccines that they need, but also so that Canadians uh, have affordable access to the medicines that we need at home as well. Um, and that requires us to rethink you know this this whole approach to R and D and to demand more, um, and and ultimately to to commit some funding to to creating this this viable uh, medical innovation ecosystem that I think uh, we're we're now looking at and that we all need.
0: Doctor Jason Nickerson from Doctors Without Borders, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, I would encourage people, if you want to read more about this, if you want to read the open letter, and there, there are certainly more details in there, go to doctorswithoutborders.ca and you will find the letter there and it will outline even more about what they are proposing and why they're proposing it. And um, as, as Dr. Nickerson just said, I mean, this is this is not a, um, you know, the debate can be had about the financial side of this, about the profits, and losses, whatever else, but it's the, the position they're taking is this is a moral imperative Canada has. The rest of the world needs vaccines. We have vaccines. It is a moral imperative to get them there. And again, some people, and I don't doubt it because we saw what happened at the beginning of COVID when Canada sent all of its or so much of its PPE to China, and then we were left without, all of a sudden it was not a good situation. You can understand where the hesitancy might be if we've got this supply to give it away, but... It's an interesting debate for sure you're listening to the bill kelly show podcast on 900 chml you know
3: with hitler the more i learn about that guy the more i don't care for him <laughs> <laughs> i can't
0: <laughs> yeah.
3: and nothing there's nothing <laughs> redeeming about the guy i tell you guys i go how on earth could these Germans like uh, follow this l- l- lunatic, you know? And they're like, "Oh, he was a an incredible public speaker, you know. He could, oh, he could uh, hypnotize you with his public speaking." And then I see him. He's like, "Stinkly, stinkly, stinkly!" I go, "What?
0: That's not my idea of a silver-tongued devil, you know." <laughs> that was norm mcdonald the great norm mcdonald on david letterman a number of years ago uh yesterday afternoon bill kelly show by the way scott radley in for bill kelly today yesterday afternoon when uh shocking i mean surprisingly they had no idea that he was sick i don't think most people did but when i heard that norm mcdonald died i started i, I sat down and I, I started making a list of who who would be on the list of the funniest canadians All time. Who who is on that list? Because we got a lot of them. And I was going through, okay, Martin Short. Yeah, he would be on there. Eugene Levy for sure. Uh, Jim Carrey, John Candy, Leslie Nielsen, Mike Myers. It's a long list. Phil Hartman, Colin Mockery, Russell Peters kept going. Jeremy Hotz. If you don't know who he is, you should find out for sure. Uh, Catherine O'Hara, Andrea Martin, Howie Mandel, Billy Van. Just a start. And Norm Macdonald is absolutely, absolutely somewhere in that list. Maybe near the top. I would say near the top. Someone else who's on that list, I would suggest, is my next guest. He is a legend around here. I'm sure everybody has heard him perform at one time or another. His name is Donnie Coy, who joins us now. Donnie, how are you?
3: There's nobody that you name that wouldn't agree. Norm was every Canadian comic's favorite comic from, from the time he was an amateur. I first saw him in Ottawa on amateur night. And I could not believe he he did an impression that only Norm would come up with. He did an impression of John Turner debating Mulroney (laughs) over a math problem. And and he was bang on with both voices. (laughs) And I just knew right then and there he was going to be a star.
0: When you said he was every Canadian comics favorite, why?
3: What was it about him? Norm was the guy that comics revered you know you're a good comic. You know other comics appreciate you and and admire you. When you, you have a killer bit, it goes nowhere as far as the crowd's concerned. In other words, right over their head. And the and the and the veteran comics are standing in the back. They just look at each other without even smiling and just go, "Now that's funny."
0: <laughs> I'll and tell you. you I, I heard
3: most of Norm's jokes hit the audience halfway home. They go, "Oh, that's what he meant. Oh, yeah. I oh I get it now." You know, your, your Norm, thought on Norm that was one. the king of one-liners, but he was also the one of the best storytellers ever. And he was a favorite. I know for a fact because I've talked to I've talked to Conan O'Brien and I've talked to Jimmy Kimmel. He was a favorite of late-night talk show hosts. Letterman wanted to adopt him. Letterman was such a fan. Mm.
0: I was listening to a story the other day uh, on YouTube somewhere. It was Steve Martin telling about the day that he met Elvis. Now, this was way back in the yeah, 70s yeah, when I Steve Martin was wearing the was wearing the arrow through his head still. And yeah. it was, you know, pretty out yeah. there. And uh, he tells the story that Elvis came into his dressing room and said, son, your humor is oblique. And yeah. I was thinking, you know, ob- ob- oblique, I don't ex- even know what that exactly means. But <laughs> yeah. that may be a perfect word to describe Norm MacDonald as well.
3: Yeah, very much so. I, I've got so many Norm stories. like I say, I, I toured with Norm. We, we we went to Halifax and Nova Scotia or well, East Coast numerous times. Um Edmonton, Calgary, Vancouver. Uh, I only got to work with them once in LA and that was at the uh, improv. But we didn't really work together, we just happened to be on the same show. I just I was doing a ten minute guest spot and Norm of course was doing ten minutes turned into being forty and <laughs> nobody wanted him to leave the stage. Yeah, Norm was the like I said. Jim Carrey loved Norm. We all loved Norm. Well, most people didn't realize that Norm. Norm's been sick most of his life. Like he's had cancer on and off. But the last ten years, in the last five years, it's gotten really bad. In the last year, got. That's why he, he, he stopped doing podcasts and interviews and everything. I guess it, according to his son, he, he just faded away. Like.
0: Donnie, explain what it was that... Now, I know what you said about how the the other comics loved him, but explain what it was that worked for Norm MacDonald. And the reason I ask that is because most comedians, there's a setup, there's a punchline, there's a a story, and then there's a twist. Half the time, it seemed, Norm MacDonald's humour came from the lack of a punchline, almost. It was just... Exactly. He was just funny. Norm would
3: take a a bad punchline, and, 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 and as they say in the writers' rooms punch it up and he some most times he'd do it with just a quick sentence two or three words or even one word and norm everybody talks about how you know how to toot, toot my own horn you know on the balls of my feet like playing with an audience uh you know and just putting hecklers in their spot norm 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 was years ahead of all of us that do that but he that just wasn't his style that's not, that's not the way he worked but if he wanted to he could have i mean he he could have been the best talk show host ever but unfortunately he would he would have just constantly been putting people down <laughs> yeah. in a funny way you know not not malicious at all my my one of my favorite there's a roast on uh youtube you can see where uh um i forget who they were roasting but anyways uh ed norton the comedian the Dirty comedian out of New York, radio guy, and the ghost, go, go figure. Anyways, he, uh, after Norm finished roasting whoever it was, he goes, watching Norm Norm roast somebody there is like watching Henry F- stopping your car at the side of the highway and watching Henry Fonda pick blueberries. <laughs> and the camera went to Norm, and Norm's sitting there, like, reading a newspaper, and he looks up and he goes, who in this room wouldn't want to watch Henry Fonda pick blueberries? <laughs> the man's a legend.
0: <laughs> and what he did, and this is the thing, I've never, I've never got up on a stage to do stand-up comedy. Um, but it seems that, I mean, to do it anyway requires a level of confidence to do the kind of stuff that Norm Macdonald did, where. Literally, for most people, it could just completely blow up in your face and you could have nothing but crickets. It was an oh, it extraordinary did. Did. level All of confidence to be All able to time. do that.
3: Like I say, most people just didn't get it, you know? Um, and, and even when it bombed, like even when admitted, you admitted, know, I don't know why he came up with that as a as a joke or anything. I mean, for every one of those he had, he had 10,000 that didn't, you know? He uh, he he was just brilliant. He, he was a one-word tactician he really was Mm. he could just he could shut you down or or speed you up he could could control you know he controlled that that stage he owned that stage when he was on it. owned it
0: donnie when you say
3: he'd go from he'd go from sarcastic to to almost slapstickish you know like like in, in motions like the way he'd move his hand or whatever you know that kind of thing just to emphasize a, a joke or a word or whatever. Like like Norm, when he first started, you know, he he was so clever. Like I say, half the time, even the comics didn't get the joke until later. Hmm. Like, he, Norm, I, I was with Norm when he wrote the, the most famous video he ever did, and unfortunately, it's not on YouTube or anywhere. You had to have seen it live. It was called Backseat Middle. It's about comics touring. Uh, five comics tour and of course two sitting up front and then of course three in the back normal I was never the window guy I was always the middle guy he goes <laughs> meanwhile the two guys on, on on either side of me if the car slams on the brakes or or, or we're in a rear we're in an accident he goes uh, um, they they got face stoppers anyways he goes me I just go right through the front windshield <laughs> 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 and then he goes your hand underneath the back seat you never know what the hell you're coming up with could be a quarter could be somebody's false teeth <laughs> <laughs> and the, there's a, and the, and it, did there's you, a have sense have you ever that... seen him do as Lou Gehrig
0: no no
3: oh, you gotta see that that's on YouTube as well he does he does the uh, every, every the anniversary of Lou Gehrig uh, speech at uh, uh, I was gonna say Madison Square Gardens at Yankee Stadium uh where today is the greatest day of my life. Norm goes, You're dying of disease. <laughs> you can't go out and say it's the greatest day of your life. Like he always had twists on it. Like one of his most famous twists was he goes, Hey, I see now they're gonna have a Mr Universe contest. I don't you know, just the way Norm talks. I don't know about you guys, but uh I'm gonna vote on uh Mr Earth, uh what with the home planet advantage and everything <laughs>
0: There was a real sense when he would do. Now you knew him, so you, you can answer this. There was you got the sense, and I don't know whether it was just his act and his shtick or real, that he couldn't care less if you laughed oh, no. or not. No, no. But is that true, it, or did, did he really care?
3: Him. He did his show. He didn't even do a show for his parents when they'd come to see him in the early days in Ottawa, well, his dad anyway. Uh, no, he did a show for him. He knew that. You either liked him or you... And he realized there was enough people that would get his sense of humor. But he did his show for him. He goes, that's why he he, he tried, you know, that's why he never took off on Saturday Night Live. He couldn't write for other people. That's why they had to make him, that, you know, write his own stuff and be, uh, be on that, the headline news, the headline desk. Because he could not write jokes for other people. Like, he, he worked in movies. People forget, you know, dirty work and whatever. He never wrote a, a line in those movies he goes he would just he would just luggage
0: we start I want to go back to something for just a second before we carry on with norm although it ties into it we started by you know I was telling you that like this sort of list off the top of my head that I was jotting down of funny Canadians this has been a this has been asked before but what's what's our secret sauce in this country that's allowed us to produce so many funny people like we, legendarily funny people
3: we as we're very close with the British when it comes to that. We're very self-defacing, whereas the U.S. is very, look at me, laugh at me. It's all about me. It's all about us. There's no other country in the world except America, which they keep, unfortunately, proven politically with riots and everything else. Mm. Whereas Canadians are self We make fun of ourselves. We don't mind making fun of ourselves. We like we make fun there you know, it's like two brothers. I can make fun of them, but you can't.
0: Yeah, yeah.
3: You know what I yeah, mean? I know exactly Canadians what you mean. Are. I can make fun of them, and he can make fun of me, and, and Mum will make fun of both of us. But we all love each other, and we all we all respect each other. And as ca- Canadian comics, that's true. And the comics that don't fit, boy, it doesn't take long for, for other comics to go on. Uh, either they'll work with them, but they just won't hang out with them, or the They'll refuse to absolutely work with them. You know, it's like going to work. You know, eventually you have to go to the boss and go, "I can't stand working with that guy in the cubicle next to me." You know, he, he's got no sense of humor, or or he's just rude, or or I, you know, we just don't get along, and it and it makes it harder for me to come to work every day. Can you transfer me to another department, or, you know, I don't want to quit. I need the job, but those comics we couldn't quit because we got another job the next night and it's in a different room with different people. So you put up with it.
0: One of the things you find if you go down a Norm MacDonald rabbit hole on YouTube, which a lot of people did last night. Um, oh, yeah. When they, um,
3: I'll bet you it, it, YouTube got more Norm MacDonald hits. I bet. Yes. I bet. Than, uh, right now in this last, let's say, 36 hours than any other person at any given I time. Bet. And, and that goes to... You know, like nine eleven and everything. I'm serious. All millions. Because don't forget, people forget that Norm wasn't only famous in the U S. and Canada. He was famous worldwide. He was a star in Europe. They loved him in England. He was a college hero in the '80s and '90s, especially the early late '80s, early '90s. They loved him. He was selling out. He was selling out arenas of college students at Ohio State and Michigan State, and you name it. People didn't realize One of the that th- Norm did a lot of corporate work that people don't realize. Huh? Like,
0: he did. No, corporate I didn't know that work
3: for like GM and Toyota and all the major companies,
0: like private. One of the things shows. I didn't realize, Donnie, about his YouTube stuff, about a lot of his stuff, and until you start watching it again, is there was norm was a guy who worked on the edge at times i mean there's there's a lot of things that by today's standards from if you look from 15 or 20 years ago by today's standards people's heads would explode if you did oh, this yeah. joke oh yeah um th- different times I, like I understand that, that. It was, because it was because he needed uh, to be on, on the edited, edge right w- was he, was he best, best on the edge
3: it was on youtube and youtube wasn't going to kick him off he's too popular mm. But yeah, I I suggest anybody want to know the real Norm or or sum up his career, watch all of Norm's podcasts. There's about a dozen of them on there, or or maybe a few more even. But you know, there's ones when when he's with like his good Canadian friends, like Jim Carrey, and uh, and then he's with like Mike Tyson and stuff like that. They're really in depth and they're really good. And the guy that manages the comedy store now acts as his co-host. He's he's a, he's a nice guy too. He's not funny but he's nice. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, That's the, the worst the, thing. That's the worst thing you could say to a comic. You're not funny but you're a nice guy.
0: <laughs> maybe the greatest trick though that I uh, Donnie that it, for about Norm. May, maybe the greatest gift that he had or one of the skills that he had is even though, again, some of the stuff that he did was edgy and was probably, by today's standards, we would might say offensive. I, I don't. Other than maybe O.J. Simpson, who I'm sure is not uh, mourning yeah. today because he was just roasted by McDonald endlessly. Oh hell yeah! Well, even people. O. J. But I don't hear anybody speaking negatively, and even before no. he died, no one says anything bad about him Norm, when he died. Norm, but somehow Norm, he was Norm able no to do enemies. this. I
3: know nobody says you know. He's, let's. We've all said bad things about people after they've died, maybe not, not on air or anything, but, you know, to, to our friends or to people that, that really knew the person or whatever. I mean, you know, the, the old adage, you've got nothing that nice to say, which, which applies. But Norm, you don't have to do that. Nobody had nobody had a mean word about Norm. Nobody said, oh, Norm made it, Norm got lucky, or Norm got a good breaks. So, lucky, Norm fought through cancer to be funny. Mm-hmm. He mm-hmm. loved being funny. The only other thing he loved as much as comedy, believe it or not, was his son, which he hardly ever talks about. But it's true; he he, he adores his son. Absolutely,
0: yeah. His, his edgy, his edgy stuff somehow, unlike a lot of people who would get in trouble, it it, it seemed almost benign. There was a non-threatening part about it. I know. Even when but he was it, sort it, of on the edge, it was okay. Uh,
3: there was a time in the, we were in Halifax, Halifax or St. John's, anyways. We were doing a show norm was closing it and norm went up and this drunk guy and norm was was doing picking on it doing his don cherry jokes where he picked on don cherry and sounded exactly like don cherry right <laughs> and i guess this uh this maritimer was a huge hockey fan or whatever and he starts he stumbles right up not stumbles but and he was a big guy he comes right, right up the middle of the stage, just staring at Norm. He goes, "You can't do jokes about Dodd Cherry. He's a god in this country." <laughs> and Norm looks down at the guy and he goes, "I agree, he's a god." He goes, "You want to fight me, don't you, buddy?" And just the way Norm talks. And he puts his hands at his <laughs> side and his shoulders up. "You want to fight me, don't you? You want to, you want to take me outside and fight me? I'll tell you what, I will. But let me finish my little comedy skit here, and then we'll go outside and duke it out. What do you say?" <laughs> 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 of course, the guy, the guy was long gone. He <laughs> He didn't, you know, he didn't realize he'd challenge Norm to a fight.
0: <laughs> it was, uh, he was a disarming guy for sure. And I would say this, we got to run Donnie, unfortunately, but uh, yeah. I-, I would argue that probably he and Martin Short, ironically, two Canadian guys, yeah. might be the two greatest talk show guests in history. Oh, yeah. And, Martin Short, talk know.
3: show interviews, and, and, oh, yeah. You'd be wasting your time if you put them on the same show. Because... Uh, you know, you got to split guys like that up. No, yeah, they're, they're, and and it's funny if you look at it, they almost look like the the, the Martin Short could be his older brother, <laughs> his short brother. <laughs> excuse the pun, but no, <laughs> you know, quick witted like on a dime. Come up with something on a dime. Like, yeah, Norm, Norm, bless his soul. Um, I'm gonna. Well, we're all gonna miss him, but like again, Absolutely. Thank God for modern age. Like I say. I guarantee you uh, at least 100 times in in the next year and in the anniversary of yesterday, I'll be watching them on YouTube.
0: Donnie Coy, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for talking. Hey,
3: anytime, Scott. And by the way, uh, back to our old days. Go Cats, go.